Greetings, Quester, and welcome to the Meddlesome Meeples. Grab an ale, sheathe your axe, and join us fireside. Here's your host, Matt Williams, with Richard and Heather. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Meddlesome Meeples. I'm Richard. I'm Matt. I'm Heather. So, Richard, what games are we going to be talking about this episode? We are going to be talking about two card games. One of them is called Robin. Mm-hmm. The other one is The Blood of an Englishman. Ah, The Blood of an Englishman. Yeah. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I'm glad you did that again. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's just what I do. It just happens to be relevant this time. We've had several outtakes so far <laughs> with mostly Matt saying fee, fi, fo, fum. So <laughs> I'm glad he's never going to stop doing it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just like to think, you know, maybe it's a new habit that I can develop. Every, every, every now and then it might uh, it might actually be relevant like this time. Yeah, yeah it know? might be. All yeah. those years I've been going around saying fee fi fo fum pointlessly. And then you found that game that yeah. we did with you. So, yeah. <laughs> Flashbacks to childhood. Well. My dad used to do that. Did he? Oh, no. <laughs> if we're trying to get ready to go somewhere and we won't get ready in time, he'd come looking for us. <laughs> it's a dad thing. And you were climbing a beanstalk or something. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we've uh, also, Heather and I will be doing the Bart's Corner as yep. usual. Uh, this time we're going to be talking mainly about new releases from Quiet Riot, Kryptonite, and Empire, which is technically a reissue, but still a new release. Mm-hmm. As well as that, we've got Tiny Meeple's Big Talk. Yeah. And this time, it is a terrifying subject. Mm-hmm. Is it not? Yes. Yeah, it's about Alien this time. And who would be the most terrifying person to be the host for <laughs> an alien face? Well, we call them, yeah, face hugger, chest burster. It's all one kind of yeah. thing, isn't it? Well, yeah. it's, the, it's the, the host for the face hugger, but then it becomes the chest burster. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be uh, something that we can get our teeth into. Not ours. <laughs> did yeah. you see what I did there? <laughs> yeah, I did. They use teeth. Well, the no, but the xenomorphs have some pretty nasty teeth. Don't they? So it's oh, difficult they to know which type. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're going to be doing that. Also, we're going to be doing Tome Talk, uh-huh. and this time I'm going to be reviewing one of my recent reads and also one of my favourite novellas, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, uh-huh. by H.P. Lovecraft. Because you know, there's just not enough Cthulhu in our episodes. No, no. If we're not doing a Cthulhu game, we've got to talk about something else, Cthulhu. Yeah. Or have, you know, something here while we record it. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets a bit weird in here sometimes. So, that's what we've got to look forward to on this, this week's episode. Let's get on with the show. Mm-hmm. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Blood of an Englishman. And if that had happened during the game, the giant would have won. Yes. Because by saying fee fi fo fum, well, not saying it, but, but spelling it out with cards <laughs> is how you win as the giant character in this game. Now, I will say the first thing that attracted me to this game, uh, both when I saw it on a stall at the expo and when I first heard that it was coming out, was its amazing bit of cover art. Yeah. Um, that We've does like the... a very scary giant. And a very tiny jack. Mm. Which is what you want from that, really. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's what you want in a picture of and the beanstalk. giant and, and yeah. Jack and the Beanstalk. Mm. But I, I love the artwork on the box. That was the first thing that drew me to it. So we picked this up. It's a two-player game. It's a very f- rapid two-player game, isn't it? Yeah, it was a lot faster than I thought it was going to be. Basically, what you've got with this game, you've got a couple of um, little guides for the players to remind you what your options are, how you play your particular side. Because both Jack and the giant play very asymmetrically don't they they're very yeah. different options yeah and then you take the remaining cards which are the beanstalk cards and treasure cards mm-hmm. and you shuffle them and they go into five stacks of ten each yeah and essentially the jack is trying to steal the treasures now there's two copies of each treasure the goose the harp and the gold yeah mixed into those stacks he is uh trying to get a sequential set of six beanstalk cards which, yeah and they don't have to be one two three four five six do they it could be one three five uh six seven eight they've got know, one or... numbers one to nine on them yeah and you just need to have six so, so you start with a low number and you go up yeah you don't want to start with five I yeah. mean, <laughs> <laughs> you're making your life very difficult <laughs> yeah um 
so you you've got to get them in the right sequence. The at the top of that sequence, you have to have a treasure card. Mm-hmm. As I say, there's six in there yeah. out of the fifty cards. Now, as well as that, that's that's how Jack will win. He needs to have three different treasures. So he's got to get the goose mm. at the top of a beanstalk, um, the harp at the top of a beanstalk, and the gold at the top of a beanstalk. For yeah. the giant, the giant wins differently. He has got to get the fee fi fo fum cards into an order. Now mm-hmm. he can win by having them horizontally on the stacks. He doesn't actually draw them for himself, unlike Jack and when he's yeah. and his beanstalks. He's got to have them in the stacks, either at the front of four different stacks, so fee fi fo fum, or in any combination of that, so fum fee fo fi. Um, yeah, this is you how know, I nearly they, got you to win once. Yeah, I? they don't have to be in the right fee fi fo fum order. You just, as long as those four cards are yeah. at the front of a stack, they can be horizontal. across the front of the stack, or they can be in a stack but all together. Yeah, they? they can that be in a vertical other, that stack. That was the one I didn't know. Yeah, didn't know. Um, and it, they don't have to be at the front of a stack to do that. Unlike the horizontal way of winning, yeah. they could be in the middle of a stack as long as they are in an unbroken line. Yeah, and you could just be um, discarding beanstalk cards from in between them. And getting yourself to win that way. Yeah, because the giant has um, three options that he can do on his turn. He can move exactly four front cards from the front of one stack to another stack. Yep. Um, he can move two cards individually front stack to front stack. Mm-hmm. Or he can discard any single beanstalk card anywhere in the castle stacks. Is it only one? Only one if I discard. Right, okay. Uh, whereas Jack also has options very different he can do three things every turn but he can move a card from the front of a stack to the front of a stack from the back of a stack to the front of a stack from a front of a stack to the beanstalk or or from the back to a beanstalk so but he can't move front to back apart from on the very first on the very first move jack gets like a three move and he can do it then that's what I remember from the thing. And Jack always takes the first turn, doesn't he? Yeah. Now this is what is so. What you just described, it might be difficult for people to really visualise. but yeah. The main thing is that each time the giant gets a turn, he gets to do one pretty big thing. Yeah. Unless he moves the two cards separately, but the other two. Things... That's still pretty big. That's from one. That's two cards from one stack going to different things. Mm. Um, whereas Jack, he gets to do three different things so basically jack is running around doing fast things whereas the jack is the giant is stamping around doing big things and whack it trying to whack him with a club of yeah of a big movement <laughs> basically so that is yeah that is um why i thought this was thematic yeah we, we like you're saying they play asymmetrically but i think it's very good with the theme yeah i think the um the actual options open to you are very very fitting with that idea of the giant Basically battling the uh, the little thief, yeah, the sneaky little thief. Yeah, As you can tell, I was the giant when we played, yeah, um, and Richard won. <laughs> yeah, I've got a gold, a goose, and a harp now. <laughs> your, your mother was very proud of you. Mm. <laughs> but this was a quite a fun little game. I think once we knew what we were, once we started playing, we we knew what we were doing very quickly. We knew what our yeah. options were very quickly, and then it played very quickly as well. But I didn't have to spend ages trying to think about what I was going to do on my turn, and neither did you. It was quite intuitive in in knowing what we were going to do, and it, yeah, it yeah. felt like there was always options. Yeah, just yeah, you had plenty to decide between, didn't you? Yeah. And like, I was a bit surprised by how quickly it was over. I did think if we played it again, and you were the giant, or I was a giant. You, you didn't do any discarding, did you? No, and... I, I basically, when we played, I, I pretty much stuck to... I was planning to do a discard, but then the game ended. Um, but I was spending a lot of my time doing either the individual moving of two cards or yeah. moving the stack of four from one stack to another stack. Yeah, you moved the fee foes really well. But um, if you had done some discarding mm. earlier on, I think I would have found it difficult in the later game. Yeah. Because I would be really trying to get cards with some numbers if you like discarded all the low numbers or something of beanstalks then i'd be able to start really high i think one of the things about this game is that the early round really favors jack yeah because you can just because there's so many options beanstalk card and put them down (laughs) the later game that balance of power swings more towards the giant because Mm. uh, as jack's options for building the beanstalks become smaller that discard option becomes really powerful yeah and it's then easier with less cards in there 
to get the FIFA film cards mm. uh, into the right order because obviously Jack can't do anything. It, well, he can move the those cards, but he can't discard those cards or take those cards out of the stack. So no. um, they're always there for the giant to use. And in a like likewise manner, I can move the treasure cards around, but I can't draw those out. But right. I can use the treasure cards to block some of your options of the beanstalks. So there is yeah, quite a few different options. You can make me waste to move, can't you? Yeah. And vice versa, you can do that with me. So there's quite a lot of options there for to play at, at aggressively or defensively. Yeah, I thought I was going to have to block you a lot more. Mm. I was going to. I was on the way to starting doing blocking moves for your Fifi Five Fun cards, but then. Um, and then I, I realised that I could actually finish off the building beanstalk. <laughs> yeah. so, I did. Yeah. Um, I did make a few moves to block you getting certain things, certain uh, beanstalk cards earlier on in the game. But then stopped doing that and started focusing more on like mass movements of the beanstalk of the stacks of cards to get to my FIFA form cards. And mm. there I wasn't. I wasn't playing defensively enough. So there is definitely a mix you have to play of this with aggressive and defensive. And I like that in a game. Yeah. And I like I say that the fact that there are always those options there. So this is a game that I really enjoy two player as a, a very fast moving game. It's only two player, isn't it? It is only two it's player. It's a fairy tale that has two characters. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not the sort of game where you would expand it with house rules to add more players. This is an out and out two player game that uh, it's got some lovely artwork, very easy to understand. I would again. I would recommend this as a nice filler game. Yeah, when, you ha- when you're game. having a coffee yeah, with somebody, you just sit down and get it out and play it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't take up much space, so you could easily play this at the pub. You could do, yeah. Uh, you do need a bit of space for it, but not not too much. It's not as much as that Universum one that we did, multi-universum. Mm. Definitely not as much as Tiny Epic Western, which takes <laughs> half your life to play that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, we've been doing a few filler games lately. It's not really something that I would... Well, I think it's because we've been basically travelling mm. more into... And uh, we have been in, like, pubs and different <laughs> places where these little filler games are just right, isn't it? Because, like, when we're here, we might as well get out Descent or yeah. something. It's like... <laughs> but, you know, Meeple's on tour. We bring out... on tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we bring, we bring out the small the filler, filler games game. and... Mm. Sometimes, sometimes we've only got, got time to grab a coffee somewhere, haven't we? So we can play some of these. And this this yeah. game is ideal for that sort of travel situation because you don't need many players, um, because it yeah. doesn't take up much space, and because it's fast. You can s- stop off on your travel somewhere at a pub for a bite to eat and get this out and have a quick yeah. Play before you I get back in the car. I'm always surprised by how much I enjoy these games once we play them. Mm. I never really feel like them so much, but then I always tend to think, oh, that's actually quite good when we play. And that's another one where where I thought that. So you'd recommend this as well? Yeah, yeah, as a filler game. Yeah. yeah. So there we are. Meeple's on tour. Bring the fee, bring the fi, the foe, but maybe leave the fun. Yeah. Nobody likes the fun. And uh, we have no choice but to take the blood of an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> so on this episode of The Quest Report, Richard and I are going to be talking about a little game uh, called Robin, which was designed by Frederick Moyerson, the same mm-hmm. designer who uh, behind Saboteur, a very popular party card game. Um, and this is released via Flatlined Games. So in Robin, the idea is it's, it's, it's a kind of a card collection game, isn't it? Where you are trying yeah. to get uh, a number of cards with the same symbol. Now you need seven cards to win the, of, the, of that symbol to win the game. The way you do that is you... Uh, Start off with a few cards. I think it's uh, three or four, and, and then they're the slippiest cards in the world. They are the slippiest cards in the world because these cards are plastic. I put them so, in two little piles because the one pile it just goes everywhere. Yeah. But they they look like they'll last well, don't they? They seem like they're constantly trying to escape from your hands. Yeah, they will just go everywhere. They're very easy to shuffle though. Yeah, yeah, they basically shuffle themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally, if you put them on the side for five minutes, you'll come back and they'll have shuffled themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right off the table. Um, so, yes, in this game, you have a little board, which will have different slots on them. Now, at one side, you've got um, Sherwood Forest, and at the other side, you've got Nottingham Castle. Yeah, so it's like how far away from civilization you are at yeah. the time, isn't it? And uh, how close to danger as well. There's basically more to steal there, uh, but here you've got less you have to give up, like in taxes. Yeah. So at the, at the 
it's also very much a push your luck system, isn't it? Because yeah, at the uh, closer to the castle, you've got more mission cards that you can draw. Which now the mission cards is six types of mission cards, and there there's symbols that you're trying to collect to make right. a full set. But the more of those that you get, the more you then have to put into what's called the contribution stack. Contribution. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, whereas the closer you are to Sherwood Forest, the less cards you draw, but then you're able to, instead of putting cards in the contribution stack, you're able to draw cards from the contribution yeah, stack, aren't you? Steal. Which means that it's very good because then you can choose a card. Yeah, actually, no, no, you don't steal. When you're over here, putting them in the contribution thing is like... So you get to get a load of stuff there, and then you put that in the contribution. It's like you're giving to the poor. Yeah, that's what I like about it. Yeah, so this is like stealing from the rich, and that is like giving to the poor. But when you're back here, you're not doing any stealing, but you are getting cards when that have been given to the forest, poor. Yeah. So it's like you're poor when you're over here, and yeah. you get the benefit from the stealing. Because you're one of the poor people in Sherwood Forest that Robin's helping, and when you're close mm. to the castle, you're then one of the merry men that is stealing from the rich to give to the yeah, poor. Yeah, so I think you're pretty merry wherever you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on which you drink. Um, yeah. uh, it's quite a nice little uh, system, that. You've got your little meeple, which will move uh, to represent you that moves oh, yeah. up and down. And with the cards, the mission stacks that you get, on your turn, you'll do three things, won't you? You'll draw however many cards from the mission stack that you're required to draw, yeah. give as many cards as you're required to give to the contribution stack, and then you've got a choice. There are certain special action cards which you can play that might let you exchange meeples on the board, yeah. uh, swap hands with another player, steal a card from another player, peek at another player's hand. Mm -hmm. There's various different things. Some of the special action cards are passive because they just count as two of the symbols that you need for a set instead of mm -hmm. one. Um, some of then so you can either play one of these special action cards or you can pl play or put down for trade rather um, a card. Now. You put down a card for trade face up, and then everyone else that's playing will, if they decide they want to trade with you, put a card face down. And so, when you can see who's trading, everyone then returns those cards over simultaneously face up so that you can see, right, this is what I'm offering. So, it's kind of like you're offering blindly, not knowing what the other players are offering for trade. Yeah. And then the player whose turn it is, the active player, will choose one of your those cards to trade with. It has to do what's on it. Yeah. Because on each of these cards that you'll be trading, it's got a, uh, sets of arrows. Now, you might have like one black arrow pointing backwards towards the forest and a couple of white arrows pointing forwards towards the castle. Now, you would have to then do all of those. Now, if it's those three sets, that means you've got to move three different meeples yeah. to move in line with those directions. If the arrows are really close together, then it's one meeple moving two twice. spaces. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the person that you traded with, so not the active player, will uh, make those moves first, and then the active player will move, uh, make the moves on his card. Yeah, so basically the one that you put down, if they take that, that still gets used first. Yeah. So yeah, you basically decide what you want to happen. But, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, if you're the active player and you've got multiple choices, then you can choose who to trade with. If mm -hmm. only one person trades, then you have to make that trade. So that's not always a good thing for you. No. Um, but as well as the symbols on the cards which you will use to make your set of seven, there's also like a little token on top of the various spaces that your meeple can be on, the various locations. Now that will count as one of those symbols for your hand if you finish your turn on that space. So it's, it's a very simple little game to learn. It is. Yeah. Very simple little game to play, and it can play very fast as well as we found out we yeah played we it. played with our friend Tim and he just suddenly so, won yeah well yeah yeah so was there as well but Tim won yeah like <laughs> lightning fast so yeah. <laughs> he just collected seven of these blue ones haven't he seven of the blue symbol yeah which I think was that the that was the sending messages missions or something like that but yeah he, he won that very quickly mm. um, so there is quite a strong random element in this isn't there what's your yeah. thoughts on this game Richard well I like the fact that when you move the meeples, mm -hmm. um, there's nothing on the cards to say which meeple it has to be. Yeah. So basically, it's not us moving up and down. Um, we're just all playing cards that move the meeples. So <laughs> basically, you're like you're like in the tides. You mm. you don't know where you're going to end up. Um, there are symbols that are put on each place, aren't they, which count yeah. towards your total. So it does make a difference where you are. Um, 
yeah, I I was glad that it worked out being so fast mm. as it was. Um, because you do want a little game like this to mm. be fast. We were talking about Biblios before, weren't we? And that seems to be always the same length, mm. like whatever happens. Whereas this one, I don't know what it would be like if you played a really long game of it. But the short game was... I, I don't think it ever could last very long. Because I think somebody would get seven in not too long. Because you, you don't have to give up cards you don't want to, do you? You yeah. can choose which ones to take. So if you're going for a certain one, basically you're just trying to do it faster than the others. I can't see a game of this lasting more than 30 minutes. 20 minutes, 25 minutes should be fine for this game. Yeah, and thematically and it works well. That's what I think. It does there work two well. things about it. Um, I think it's got that thematic feel, as you say. Mm. Um, and I think... It's got a nice, fast game. If this was more than 30 minutes, I really don't think I'd ever bring it to the table because I think mm. doing what we're doing in this game for a short time is fine and it's fun. If it was a longer game, I think you'd start to feel bogged down and want to do something else. Yeah. Um, so it's the right length. Uh, the components are quite nice. The card, I like the little, uh, again, like with Biblios, a little box that opens like a book. Uh, with the magnetic yeah, strip Yeah, this one doesn't look like anything, but it's, it's still a nice little box for a little game, isn't it? Yeah. Um, as I say, it was originally designed for a company, um, and it was to do with social welfare. It was then was it? Yeah, it was then rethemed oh, yeah. to be a Robin Hood theme. Mm. And it used to be conservatives in the welfare <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and I do think the, the theme of it works well with the way the game is played. Well, if it's called Robin Hood, then you want something very fundamental about the game mm. to be about that theme. Taking the, yeah, of take, one thing and the giving of another. About stealing, trying not to get caught, that kind of stuff. And mm. you don't want it to just be a random card game with a Robin Hood theme yeah. plastered on the front. And this does feel like... Very fundamentally, in the mechanics, it is a Robin Hood game. So I don't think that this is a game that's going to you know, rock anybody's world in the sense that they're going to buy it and they're going to go, oh wow, this game is amazing. But I do think that when you play this, you will go, you know, it's, it's fun. It's you a go, fun, 20, yeah. fun 20 minutes, isn't it? Yeah, you go, hmm. And you go, <laughs> hmm, now we've got to pick up those cards from the floor that have just flown out of my head. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But um, yeah, so I would say, as a light filler game, as a quick game, this is fun, and I think this would work brilliantly with children. Yeah, if they can hold on to the cards. <laughs> well, it might be hard to teach. My kids' fingers are always a bit sticky, so that's probably going to be fine. Actually, yeah, these cards might. Yeah, let them play it. It's it's white clean if you if you play with kids. Actually, yeah, yeah, you so, can wipe these clean. Uh, so my kids personally, I think would would really enjoy this as they get a little bit older. But yeah, especially for children, this will be a good filler game. But I think as as a general break between other games. This is a fun little fella. So that's Robin by Frederick Moyson. Robin. Stay meddlesome and merry. Mm -hmm. I don't know who you are, but we're the meddlesome maples. Time for the music news about bands with skills. A very particular set of skills. Hello, welcome to the Bard's Corner. We have a lot to go through this week. <laughs> right. So starting off with a, a quick uh, reminder of some of the releases that we've uh, been able to look forward to for July. Um, Mr. Big's album, Defying Gravity, is out right now. Ten's uh, 13th studio album, Gothica, uh, is out right now as well. That is an absolutely superb album. Uh, the album California by the River Dogs. All 41's album, World's Best Hope. There's a three-CD box set that was released on the 7th of July as well by Blind Guardian. That was entitled Live Beyond the Spheres. That was a three-CD set, so that... That was pretty impressive as well. Uh, on the 14th of this month of July, Egg Guy uh, are releasing an album called Monuments, which is to commemorate their 25th anniversary. Now that's a double CD DVD combination. On the CDs, there's 22 sort of best of tracks. Uh, there's also, uh, as well as that, five n brand new songs and one previously unreleased track. So that's 28 songs altogether. The DVD uh, that comes with it, it's a complete concert from the Hellfire Club tour that was recorded live in Sao Paulo. And as well as that, it's also got their uh, music DVDs. So that's a really, really impressive uh, collection. I've been listening to some of that. If you manage to get the limited edition of uh, 
of monuments, then it also comes with a 160-page book, which documents the uh, the long history of the band. Other albums to look forward to is Warner Drive till the wheels fall off. We spoke about that previously, and don't forget on the 23rd of June, the Angel Wings album The Edge of Innocence was released as well. So that was a a really good CD and one of the uh, strongest contenders for our new band of the year. I was going to say there's a lot of older bands there, isn't there? There has been a lot of uh, reissues, a lot mm. of uh, bands that have come back. We spoke about that uh, on our last Bard's Corner as well, which was sort of a blast of the past with new mm. albums from Saxons and returns from Lionheart and Da Vinci. So there's there's been a lot of uh, older bands making a return, which is absolutely great for the scene. Mm. Um, as well as that, we just want to talk about some of the tour dates coming up. Now, Taiketo have announced a seven-day tour in the UK in November. Come on, do it in one go. One breath. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're going to be playing at Hard Rock Hell, Sheffield, Manchester, Nuneaton, Troon, Edinburgh and Newcastle. That's going to be between the 10th to the 26th of November. Night Ranger are also going to be playing at Hard Rock Hell on the 9th of March next year. But on the 11th of March, they're going to be going over to London's Shepherd Bush Empire, where they're going to be doing a joint headline gig with Skid Row. Cool. Um, as well as that, if you go onto our paradiserock.co.uk website and check out the tour section, there's some gigs uh, for the end of July for the Graham Bonnet Band, Vega, FM and the Dirty Thrills. So be sure to check those out. Summer's a good time for music. It's always a good time for rap music, isn't it? Um, now, the three albums we wanted to talk to you about in a little bit more depth today. The first one was Empire. The Raven Ride by Empire, via Pride and Joy Records. Uh, this one was originally released through Metal uh, Heaven back in 2006. It was the third album by Empire, and it's the third reissue. This is Tony Martin from Black Sabbath on vocals, Neil Murray on bass from Whitesnake, Brian Maybland, uh, Black Sabbath... Rolf Monk's on guitar, he's the main guy behind the band. He's uh, currently with Crematory, Been, he's played with Razorback and mm. Majesty, he's a phenomenal guitarist. And Andre Hilgers on drums. Super um, band! Yeah, Andre Hilgers uh, was the drummer with Rage and with Axis. Do you remember? Yep. We saw them. No, no, so, no, you just saw them. Were you not with me for the Axis concert? Well, I'm pretty sure I just had a baby. Oh, yeah. Duh, you were involved <laughs> a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll take some credit for that. Um, so nah, we couldn't get babysitter because <laughs> he wouldn't stop crying. <laughs> so, going back to the Raven Joking. Ride, unless from my personal uh, problems. The, ra <laughs> the Raven Ride I'm is... I'm not sore about it at all. <laughs> it's got some really good songs on the Raven Ride. Um, the, the actual... Uh, album tra title track itself The Raven Ride beautifully heavy beautifully heavy uh, song uh, it's got really good rhythm to it as does one of my other favourite songs on the album called Breathe uh, my favourite song on that album is a song called I Can't Trust Myself which <laughs> has got a really catchy chorus really catchy hook um, Rolf Monks does some incredible guitaring on that album I'd say if you like metal music if you like heavy metal at all then definitely go check it out as I say Ralph Monks is a brilliant guitarist. Um, it's a, an album, an album with a, a fantastic group of musicians playing. Um, I, there are some songs on there I wasn't too crazy about, so it's got a seven point five f from me. But be, be sure to check that one out. That's out on the eighteenth of August. Five Pride and Joy Records. The second album we wanted to talk to you about today is the self-titled debut album. Uh, from a band called Kryptonite. They're a, they are a new band, but the members have all been with other bands. So the lead singer is Jake Samuels, who was the lead singer of The Poodles. Um, the bassist, Pontus Egberg, he played with both The Poodles and with Treat. Mm -hmm. uh, Robin Back, the drummer, he used to play with Eclipse. Cool. And Mike Pallis, the guitarist, he uh, was the lead singer and songwriter of a band called Pallis, his own band. Um, they've got Alessandro Dalvecchio, who's the producer for this album. He also plays keyboards. So, very good lineup. This album, all the way through, is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the best albums I've listened to this year. I'll say Ooh. right out, it's getting a 9.5. 
Um, I've <laughs> Again with the point five. <laughs> 9. 5. That's a thing now, point 0.5. You didn't use point to. F- oh, it's, we always get a point 0.5 somewhere. <laughs> um, it's difficult to pick out the real highlights from the album, mm. but I'll just go through a few. This is the moment, Chasing Fire, Keep the Dream Alive, Fallen Angels, mm. and Knowing Both of Us, and Get Out Be Gone. They were my favourite songs on the album, but to be honest, the whole album, it's 11 tracks, and I listened to the entire thing probably four or five times back to back Mm. um it's just a really good energetic rock album if you like heat if you like eclipse if you like the poodles uh, if you like melodic rock at all this is an album you absolutely have to check out it's it's the third nominee uh for paradise rock album of the year so far um as i say there are a couple of not slow songs but more power ballady songs which is Mm. fallen angels and knowing both of us but the rest of the album is just really fast paced tempo some incredibly catchy songs on there so that's out on the 4th of august make sure you check that out that's kryptonite through frontiers music srl the third album we've got to talk about today is quiet riot's road rage now that's out on the 4th of august uh, the lead singer now is james durbin he was on American Idol. I think he finished fourth or something like that. Mm, I, don't, about I don't follow it. Didn't, yeah, I don't watch it. Um, I wasn't... I didn't have high hopes for this because I find that singers that migrate from those kind of talent shows or go on those sort of talent shows and then go into rock bands doesn't mm. generally work out well with the exception of Nathan James who's absolutely fantastic. Uh, but there were, it came out a lot better than I expected. There was uh, a couple of decent songs on the album Wasted, uh, Freak Flag, and Still Wild, which had quite a, a good ri- rhythm. Um, it, so as I say, the album was better than I expected, but uh, still fell a little flat for me. Um, I've given this one a 6.5 out of 10. James Durbin sang a lot better than I expected, but as I say, overall, this album for me just didn't mm-hmm. hit the mark. But I do think that if you're a fan of Quite Riot, you will um, be glad to get hold of this album. So if you'd like to find out any more about these tour dates or the album releases, please be sure to check out paradiserock.co.uk. Thank you. Bye. Lock your doors, bar your windows, and get a spare change of pants at the ready. It's time for something scary now. Welcome to Tiny Meeple's Big Talk. And this time we are going to talk about aliens. This is terrifying one here, who is a bobblehead. Even as a bobblehead, they're pretty scary, aren't they, actually? <laughs> but this is a little, little xenomorph we have in our midst. What we're actually going to talk about is the fact that... Well, this guy's sitting on an egg, aren't he? So, yeah, as you know, um, aliens appear when somebody has been got by a facehugger. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, the alien bursts out of that person's chest a bit later at dinner. So, we are going to think about... What would be the most terrifying host for a face hugger? Yeah. And the reason for it is because it takes on a bit of your DNA, doesn't it? Yeah. So the well, alien that bursts out is a little bit similar to the creature. I thought it'd be good just to first to explain how that process works. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because it makes so much sense. It does make so much sense. When that face hugger gets you, it doesn't deposit an egg or anything. What it does is it deposits basically a set of tumors. Yeah. Or a tumor. Um, and that tumor, that cancer, will then bring about uh, genetic restructuring of the person's cells. So essentially, they they are building the chest burster from the host's own biological material. Well, That's why it takes on the traits of the host. I thought the biomass would have to come from somewhere. Wouldn't yeah. It? So first off, the face hugger would dose its vic- victim with a toxin that would render them unconscious. That's, then, that's why Kane couldn't remember anything. Yeah. Then it launches a chemical attack that suppresses the victim's immune system mm-hmm. to prevent the host, um, you know, attacking the embryonic chest burster. That's standard for pregnancy, yeah. isn't it? Then it inserts its, uh, I think it's called the proboscis or something, whatever it is. It inserts basically a tube into the victim's throat, mm-hmm. and it launches these cancers into the esophagus. Now they can't face huggers can't do that to something smaller than a cat. I would probably say they couldn't do it to something as small as a cat. Why? Because um, you don't want to do it to Brody or Jonesy. I wouldn't want it to do it to Brody, but I was thinking they they left Jonesy 
alone in aliens, didn't they? So maybe that was because the facehuggers couldn't implant something. Actually, yeah, it, it was too small. It did leave Jonesy alone? I never really thought of that. I just thought Jonesy had been like lucky. <laughs> well, I, I I thought maybe Jonesy was just that tough that no one of the facehuggers would go near him. But you know, it yeah. would make sense that because of his size. Uh, on the other hand, they can. Um, implant with things larger than humans up to like oxen type sizes yeah because in Alien 3 theatrical version it's a dog that it bursts out Mm. of isn't it but in the director's cut it's an ox yeah and these things are quite tough I mean it's it's non-canon but for example there was an Aliens uh, Vampirella crossover and in that a facehugger was caught by uh, Vampirella Mm -hmm. um in midair, but it was still able to overpower. Yeah. So, and with not having any kind of leverage, you would say that I would say that that says that the facehuggers are a lot stronger than we probably yeah, give them credit for. To, people managed to pull them off a bit, playing that looked very difficult. Um, you know, when they were, when it was trying to mm. attack her, and those marines pulled it off. So, yeah. So I would say they are quite strong, but they're not insurmountable. They're about so. as strong as a spider that big. You'd expect it to be. <laughs> I, yeah, I relative think. strength, probably. Yeah, that's mm. probably a fair description. So, who would make, therefore, bearing in mind that it would take on the traits of the host, the best or the most terrifying host? Me, because <laughs> then it would burst uh, <laughs> out my chest. That's the first thing I thought of. Yeah. But I knew what you were going for. So, I did think of people like the Hulk, because, like, can you imagine a. One of these that you couldn't get angry, otherwise it would turn green and get even bigger. <laughs> they seem pretty angry all the time, though, so I don't know if that's a. I mean, a you thing. haven't seen my list because I did no. write a couple of, uh, not a big list, keeping it short. Um, but I did write a couple of names down here that I thought would be particularly terrifying. Right. The top of the list, and the only one on my list that I am really dubious about. The viability of it <laughs> viability was, was the Hulk now the reason I say I'm not sure about the viability of the Hulk the Hulk has regenerative powers he can heal himself yeah so would he be able to heal the tumors now that's one question the other thing is well if he didn't get tumors from all that gamma rays <laughs> then... <laughs> well he is susceptible to gamma radiation he's it's one right. of his weaknesses radiation um, okay, then. but I was just thinking he the Hulk can be affected by uh, toxic substances mm-hmm. he can be gassed so that ability to uh, render him unconscious might work especially if they attacked him as Bruce Banner and not as the Hulk I think I imagined more the facehugger getting Banner before he managed yeah, to get angry before he turned into I mean he'd be pretty angry with one jumping at him but I think once it's rendered him unconscious it'd be a this bit this is difficult. what I was kind of thinking so you, you get that you get unconscious now the question here is would this uh, toxin that he they use to suppress the host immune system, would it be able to suppress um, the Hulk's healing power? Now, nah. let's assume, just for the just sake dreaming, of dreaming, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but let's assume. I mean, that's that's the big question there. But let's assume, for the sake of argument, that it could. Okay. Imagine an alien that got bigger, stronger, and greener the more it got angry. That's what I was thinking. And you don't really like to shoot aliens because of the acid blood mm. if you're near it. But bullets tend to bounce off the Hulk anyway, so they'd be even tougher. Really. And I was thinking, considering the Hulk's ability to withstand enormous concussive blasts um, and projectiles, you. you couldn't take off and nuke him from orbit. No, he... <laughs> yeah, he'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's so... just playing right into his hands, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is... This, this, I think, is probably, in many ways, one of the more terrifying concepts. Mm. If, if you had, um, basically, a green-raged, gamma-radiating xenomorph. That would be yeah. pretty terrifying to deal with. So if you think that the Hulk's regenerating ability would make him a little bit more difficult for it to, to work on, uh, would that go for Wolverine as well? I would think it would be the same for Wolverine, yes. But yeah. I... Because um, Wolverine was the other one I thought of, but I thought, well, to be honest, between a combination of aliens, um, Wolverine and alien Hulk, Hulk would be the scariest. And we're going for the scariest, aren't we? Because I think Wolverine's abilities, with his healing power, you'd get that if he was b- taken from the Hulk. The other yeah. thing I thought of was Deadpool, 
because yeah. then you just have a wisecracking alien, and that just wouldn't be scary at all. Yeah, the uh, alien with the mouth and the little mouth, <laughs> and both wisecracking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but if he was the Hulk, he'd have that healing regenerator. He'd have you'd get stronger constantly the more the longer he was fighting. Angry. It would just be totally terrifying. That would um, be. Yeah. Whereas I say with Wolverine. His other non-healing capabilities, so his enhanced senses, his agility... Well, the aliens Don't got all lead. that pretty much anyway. Yeah, I, I was thinking that. Because the thing about Wolverine is the claws, but that's just different from a human. Whereas he's got claws. He's got claws, and pretty deadly claws. They're, they're a bit different, but um, obviously it wouldn't be born with the with the adamantium skeleton because so it was be put on him afterwards. Claw. Yeah, there'd be bone claws. So an alien with adamantium would be... But you'd need Striker to do that to the alien afterwards. <laughs> Can you imagine how difficult it would be to put adamantium into a creature with acid blood? Yeah, actually. Yeah. Adamantium <laughs> seems pretty tough, though, so I wonder if they could do it. <laughs> you know, it's meant to be the perfect organism. It could make it more perfect. Well, I'd like to think that the uh, there are scientists out there working on that right now. Well, it's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Hulk was my first thought, and it's the only one that I had doubts about the viability of but i think overall the odds are that it, it could work so the rest of your list is really sensible it is very <laughs> sensible okay. okay let's hear another one then let's hear another one darth vader so imagine a sith xenomorph yeah because it would be a sith rather than a jedi darth xenomorphus i mean i think yeah i think it would just get the midichlorians from him wouldn't it or whatever this is basically what i was thinking that he could take over uh, it could implant Invader, and it would come out, and it would be able to use the Force. Now, imagine a, a lightsaber, Force-wielding Xenomorph coming at you in the yeah. bowels of a ship that's malfunctioned in the in like, space. you're trying to run away from it down a corridor, and then it's just like, whoo, it just lifts you <laughs> off the floor, and that draws you towards it. Yeah, that would be pretty terrifying. Shooting yeah. tons of bullets at, at it, and it just stops them all in midair, like Neo. Yeah, like Neo, yeah, even though it's... Yeah. Use, by the, using scary. the power of the force. Yeah, yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be scary. Thing about this, I it could hold it... you in place while a chestburster got you. Using yeah, the force. it could too. Yeah, because um, yeah, I was just thinking, um, xenomorphs are so scary anyway. Mm. Um, there's not. I mean, there's certain hosts that would be really terrifying for it, but. It's hard to get more terrifying than these things anyways. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, as I say, a, a Sith Xenomorph definitely is more terrifying than a normal Xenomorph. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was, was thinking, sorry. there are difficulties here. Now, first of all, it's going to be very difficult to catch mm. Vader on a wears. mask. And he wears a mask. Now, the, the facehuggers can shoot acid that will dissipate the mask or a helmet. We've seen that in, in the Aliens I franchise. don't think they plan ahead, though. Uh, well, no, no, I don't think. Well, they seem to pick their times when they attack very well. A little bit. So yeah. I think maybe an alien could um, dissolve Vader's mask, but I think because of his sense of awareness, it wouldn't go for his mouth. No. Because and I've researched this, and and it seems that the science agrees with me. Um, <laughs> it does it? It does. You'll be happy to know that a xenomorph could just as easily implant rather than in your esophagus, in your anal regions. So we Actually, could have a butt burster instead I of a chest burster. I saw a question about that online when I was just researching what the aliens actually do, but I didn't click on it. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd be better than that. <laughs> but I'm just saying, Darth Vader butt burster. Mm. It is possible, and because it's the same genetic material. That makes it worse. It would make it somewhat grosser, as well as being more terrifying. Like, Vader's just walking around, like, are you all out of Vader? <laughs> yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, no wonder he's been breathing. Oh, I've been hurt. I've I've been hurting the dark side. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've yeah. Xenomorph violated the Dark Lord of the Sith. So yeah. So this could be an option rather than a frontal attack on Vader because of his mask and because yeah. of his um his well, danger perception. Well, he could get any, anyone like that. Like he could get the Emperor. <laughs> So uh, there was another another one I was thinking of Vader. Another so I just thought of well one of the previous ones I thought of like not Cthulhu because he's too massive. We always like to bring it around to Cthulhu, but like one of the deep ones or something like that uh, was something from the Lovecraft yeah. universe because anything from the Lovecraft universe these, right, would make it more terrifying. These are so scary, but these are like a bioweapon mm. type thing. But if it was combined with a creature like from beyond, <laughs> like a one of the old ones or one of the spawn of the old ones, then 
it would just it would just be like squared how terrifying it was and how insane it would make you i think it would probably be um many of the old ones would be too uh, too big but something like a night gaunt or mm. a deep one or any of those kind of, of the creatures goat, the spawn of the goat that yeah kind of any of those kind of creatures would be ter- you know it would possibly be even more scarier than a lovecraftian monster what? lovecraft an alien that wrote horrific novels of mind-inducing <laughs> yeah. terror. That thing just got me. <laughs> <laughs> imagine, yeah. imagine that, uh, like that protruding mouth uh, coming out with a little pen and just uh, write, yeah, writing tales of man's insignificance in the in the cosmic universe. <laughs> that yeah. is pretty terrifying. Yeah, it's like I know, I know you haven't seen it, but one of the recent Doctor Who's where the uh, with the Vatican were keeping this bit of paper that if you read it, it makes you kill yourself. <laughs> Imagine this guy like the book could of Revelation. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, but, yeah that, that would be pretty scary. Um, the, another th- one I thought of um, was the Gem Hadar. Yes. Uh, from the universe of Star Trek. If you're not familiar with, with them, the Gem Hadar appeared in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. They're the foot soldiers of the Dominion. I think our audience is probably... They're, you probably know who the Jem'Hadar are. Um, addicted to catch us white. So basically this guy would be addicted liability. anyway. They are born addicted. So you'd have like a, a, a drug addicted, angry <laughs> alien who can turn invisible. And will die for the founders unquestioningly. Yeah. Yeah, like the drones for the queen. It kind of it got it's got a nice yeah. flow there. Has, um, yeah. But as I say, I yeah, just the think... the invisibility would be pretty scary. A xenomorph that can disappear when you're shooting at it and just appear behind you. I mean, they kind of do that anyway because they're great at sneaking around. Yeah, but it'd be even better if they can actually shroud. Yeah, yeah. that would be pretty scary. Well, well, from the Star Trek universe, the other one I was thinking of... Well, the the one that came to mind to me was the Herogen. Just because they're so massive and tough and obsessed with hunting. It's like, they seem a bit more pragmatic. The the Herogen are like the predators. Yeah, as a little of, bit of yeah. the alien predator series, um, very much in that vein. But it's like the Herogen just can't stop. Like even when they have captured the whole of Voyager, like they create the holodeck so they can mm. carry on hunting constantly. And if an alien was to capture you and be wanting to do that kind of scenario, that would be horrible. <laughs> can you imagine like a like a a chestburster Herogen and a chestburster Jem Hadar mm. squaring off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Fighting on a derelict ship. Because I think, as after I thought of the Jem Hadar, I thought, well, you know, would there be any more uh, races that would be more scary than a Jem Hadar um, xenomorph? And I thought, well, a Klingon xenomorph would be cool, cause, but that would just be one that wanted to battle everything. Yeah. Wouldn't be particularly any more scary. It would just stand toe to toe with you, wouldn't it? Really? I thought maybe a xeno. Um, Xenoborg or a Xenoq. I was thinking about the Xenoborg, but I thought it's more you. They would assimilate the Xenomorph after mm. it bursts out of somebody else. An they, assimilate, they yeah, that, it, an assimilated Xenomorph that would, be pretty, would be pretty terrifying. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think they could get one on cue. No, I, I did think you know. Imagine a, that. Yeah, realistically, it just couldn't happen. I just suddenly, I just suddenly thought, you know, a cue with. Uh, Xenomorph-like tendencies. Unlimited abilities over <laughs> space-time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a Xenomorph with unlimited abilities over space-time would be terrifying, but it just could never happen because a, a Q would never allow it no, to happen. let's keep it realistic. Although, he did get punched by Cisco. Let us not forget that. Yes. And then he never had any more problems with Q. But now we're going off-topic. Let's, re- let's reel it in. So, I, yeah, as in a, a Cisco Xenomorph. <laughs> a Cisco Xenomorph. <laughs> Would be was, would be scary. I was thinking about a lot of the captains actually. <laughs> well, I did think of, about you know maybe a Zeno Kirk, but a Zeno Kirk would just want to like have his shirt ripped all the time and get into weird fights with a Gorm. Yeah, chasing um, alien babes. A, Basically, that does it anyway. Yeah, and <laughs> and a Zeno Janeway would just you know get have crew lost in the Delta Quadrant. So yeah, drink lots of coffee, go on a vendetta. Yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, a Xeno Gem Hadar would be terrifying, I think. Yeah, the definitely. The only other one that I thought of, similar in, in vain to the Hawk, would be a Xeno Superman. Yeah. Or a Xeno Aquaman that would come at you from underwater. Again, the Aquaman like a seaborne again. version of Xenomorphs. If you were anywhere near the sea, then yeah. 
as far inland as we are, I don't think we need to worry. <laughs> but we've also already got deep ones to give us nightmares about going in the sea, haven't we? So Yeah, that's why I stay here. Those were my thoughts on the most terrifying hosts. Yeah, yeah, those are some pretty terrifying hosts. I, w- I was just thinking a bit outside the box on this one. Really, I mean, I thought of a lot of similar ones to you about what would make a powerful one, but I was also just thinking about the chest burster itself, like that kind of happening. One thing that immediately came to mind was the queen, because then it would make an alien queen, <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's a lot worse <laughs> than a normal xenomorph. But then I was just thinking, like any kind of public figure, like however bad a speech can be, if somebody suddenly like just. So I'm screaming that her chest is right. <laughs> That's got to be the worst speech in the world. That, that would be a horrible way for Donald Trump to end a rant. That's what I was thinking, like, um, like a, a Trump xenomorph <laughs> bursts out during a speech and then just goes and makes friends with Putin. And <laughs> oh, a Putin xenomorph would be terrible. It would just be like a xenomorph going around conquering countries and posing... On the back of horses. <laughs> yeah, and get an, an amazing approval rating in his own country. <laughs> but again, off topic. So, reeling it in. I... No, it's on topic. It's on... <laughs> you asked what the most terrifying one would be, and they are them. Yeah, that would be pretty scary. Yeah. I, I still think that my um, Darth Xenomorph would be marginally more terrifying. I didn't really think of that one, yeah. And that one would be scary. Basically just a xenomorph that can use the force would be, but would he inherit... No, obviously it's not in his genetics that he'd uh, get the breathing problems. It'd be a uh, perfectly it... healthy Darth Vader xenomorph come out. Yeah. yeah. But then it's straight into the lava. <laughs> <laughs> and then have to get revived. <laughs> so yeah, I for me... That, I think, is definitely the top of the bell. Even mm. scarier than a Xenomorph Hulk, a Xenomorph Jem'Hadar, a Xenomorph Superman, and even scarier than, dare we say it, a Xeno-Deadpool. Just <laughs> be going around cracking jokes. Yeah, Captain Xenomorph. <laughs> <laughs> no, just Xenomorph. <laughs> just Xenomorph, yeah. <laughs> so, that's what we've been thinking of as the, the scariest... Yeah. Um, the scariest host for a... Uh, a face hugger. Please don't try thinking about it at home. Especially before you go to sleep. That will mm. give you terrifying nightmares. Yeah. That, and that's what Lovecraft's for. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So let us know what you think, please. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what would terrify you more than any of those. And uh, even, you know, can you think of something as scary as a xenomorph Aquaman? Yeah, give us some more nightmares. Yeah. We don't have enough. Tell us what you think. Now it's time to talk about books with the Meddlesome Meeples. Okay, welcome to Matt's literature exam, <laughs> um, where he's going to talk about a book he's claimed to have read, uh, which is, well, we've got this really nice hardback copy of the complete Cthulhu Mythos Tales, uh, which I was just having a flick through earlier, and but there's a particular one in here that you're going to talk about, isn't there? That's right. Which one's that? The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Yes. Now, now the Shadow Over Innsmouth is interesting because mm. out of all the various uh, stories that H.P. Lovecraft wrote and published, mm-hmm. The Shadow Over Innsmouth was the only one that was actually released as a book during Lovecraft's right. lifetime. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, only with a very small run, and there was something like um, 400 copies of it made, mm. and I think two of them had that many typos and printing errors that they had to be destroyed so that only left 200 of copies it only left 200 copies in circulation and actually HP <laughs> Lovecraft himself never thought it was going to be published right because he thought it was that um it was that down on that particular work because he thought it was it had errors he thought there was problems with the storyline mm-hmm. and also HP Lovecraft um was known for his lack of confidence in his ability to write action Right. That's what. Yeah, a lot of it is kind of description of something from a very from a distance. It seems that's, that's what right. I often thought. So he never he doesn't very often uh, get into any kind of like first person accounts of well this happened and then I did this. And... No, they just tend to hear it from a beardy guy by the docks or something. Yeah, and like in, in kind of vague descriptive terms, like you know, um, you know, the man struggled with such and mm. such, and rather than actually like a blow-by-blow account of, of something. Mm. Um, this is like the, got the only real action sequences mm. that he's wrote 
in oh, a more detailed context mm-hmm. in The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Um, one of the other things that's quite unusual about the book, it doesn't actually mention the name of the, it, the narrator. Because right. if you're familiar with Lovecraft's work, a lot of it is done through like letters and memoirs and mm. and uh, through narration, yeah. And it's a narration. A narrator will go through the story and dis- describe himself talking with other characters and mm. and uh, interacting with various creatures and surroundings. And it's the same in this. It's the first person nar- narrator, mm-hmm. and it's kind of recounting events, almost like he's writing into a journal. Right. Um, yeah. To others, but the narrator himself, nor his parents, are named in the book. He just says I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we do know from H.P. Lovecraft's s- story notes from when he was writing the story that the character, the narrator, was going to be called Robert Olmsted. Right. Yeah. Um, he also named his mother as well, but his father is still without name. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very interesting story about. Uh, this traveller is a 20 year old man mm-hmm. he's on a tour of uh, New England and other locations and he is basically going on a tour to see architecture mm-hmm. he's in this uh, this town and it's a real real town in Massachusetts called Newsburyport mm-hmm. and while he's there he starts to try and plan his next route which is going to take him to Arkham from Newsburyport but the train fare is quite pricey, and right. he, so he starts looking for a cheaper alternative. Sounds and like he's playing Pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the ticket sellers actually says to him, well, there's actually a, a bus that runs to, from News Report to Arkham mm-hmm. via the town of Innsmouth. Right. But everyone that he s- speaks to about it is very, very negative about the uh, the town and its people there's a oh, real suspicion yeah. and they start some almost um almost supernatural tones like there's something really dark and foreboding about this place right. and the people there mm. nothing concrete it's just that they know that the, everyone has this distrust and re- repulsion at not only of Innsmouth but mm. the inhabitants of the town is it something they've been going strange kind of more recently Something like that. Well, it's it's yeah. Well, it's been going on for years, but it was mm. kind of a long-held distrust, and right, yeah, been, he yeah. heard about um, like a plague that had happened, mm-hmm. which had killed about half of the town's population. But he was uh, the narrator, Rich, uh, Robert Olmsted. He starts to think, well, if if this town can arouse such animosity, mm-hmm. uh, such hostility in its neighbours, there must be something interesting about this town. So he does some research in the town before he decides to go there the mm-hmm. next morning. And that research really sets off the tone for the rest of the, the story. Because yeah, of some of the things he yeah. finds out mm. about it, and about like the jewellery, for example, uh, some of the strange pieces that they've got, mm. he then goes, and then when he starts to see these things in an, in Innsmouth, mm-hmm. they all start to connect with some of the local stories he's hearing from different yeah. individuals there so it's like a story within a story because yeah. you, you get to hear everybody's account of what happened years ago yeah so there's a couple of characters he meets in Innsmouth who gives him some details about the town um, one is a non-resident from Arkham and another one is, is actually one Zadok one Zadok yeah. <laughs> one is Zadok Allen uh, yeah. who we know from one of our um, Lovecraft inspired games Manchester of Madness yeah, Second Edition of Mad- we, yeah you often we have meet to him keep... in Innsmouth yeah and he keeps appearing in different places drunk, yeah. doesn't he? And you keep having to try and get him to tell more of the story. So he has this um, encounter with Zadok and he gets told things which he, f- quite frankly, just thinks is the ramblings of an old man. Yeah. But then, as night falls, he finds <laughs> himself still in Arkham. And I don't want to say much more than that because yeah. there is an incredible story there. A very, very tense you find out what's been happening. You find in out Arkham. what's been happening in Innsmouth through these stories of Zadok, and mm. then through uh, the narrator's own experiences. Yeah, which you right. knew from like from the ver- first verses of the book. He's starting to say that you know this encounter, which he's writing about, then triggered government investigation and and mm. a massive governmental operation. So you 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 kind of know early on There's that gonna something's going to go down. Bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the story of what happens to him in Innsmouth is brilliant. And then subsequently, the aftermath mm-hmm. and the way the book finishes is slightly spine-tingling. Yeah. Yeah, they often kind of... 
definitely will find out something towards the end, won't they, or something yeah. like that in Lovecraft stories. And I love the ending for for this. Now, I've read a number of the other books, as mm-hmm. you have as well, like The Call yeah. of Cthulhu, and I really love The Call of Cthulhu. This one is more of a story than Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, it's Call got... of Cthulhu, yeah, it had... The main action in it happens in the past, in the story, doesn't yeah. it? He basically finds out what happened to his ship years ago, doesn't he? Yeah, so. whereas with uh, The Shadow of Innsmouth, the narrator is really caught up in the action mm. himself, and he's re- so he's talking about what yeah. you know what he did and what happened to him as opposed to as you say the call of cthulhu where a lot of it it's like the uh, narrator's being told by like the the inspector mm. isn't he of what you know what has happened to him and his investigations yeah here the narrator's living through it himself um and the tension in at times mm. really builds up because of that mm-hmm. um i really do like the the character of um the narrator and whatever he is <laughs> yeah uh, Robert Olmsted and I do like as well the, some of the other characters like Zadok Allen mm. and some of the other ones he meets on his his adventure yeah. um, if you are familiar with the Lovecraft mythos this story does fit straight into that as opposed to some of Lovecraft's non-Cthulhu mythos stories right. um, it's a novella it's not a full length novel it's something like 50 novellas, pages in it. Yeah. But it manages to tell quite a lot of information and quite a lot of story and mm. action in those uh in that short story. It's also been used a number of times to make audio books um and audio dramas. It's in- Yeah, I think I might have listened to an audio drama of it or something. It's not There was one um probably my favorite of the renditions of it. It was an abridged version, so it's not the full story, but it's an abridged version. And it captures the feel of the book perfectly. And that was uh, a BBC edition, which was read by Richard Coyles. Right. Now, Richard Coyles, if you've watched, um, like, Going Postal, Mm -hmm. the the adaptation of the Discworld novel, um, he plays Moist von Litvig. Oh, okay. So he's, like, the main guy in that. Mm -hmm. Um, His attempts at American accents aren't very good. (laughs) (laughs) But... Forget that, because I mean, most of us in, in in the UK, which is where we're from, wouldn't know the local accents from like Massachusetts anyway. No, I mean, we? here plenty of American actors doing English accents that <laughs> don't sound like anything like anything we've heard here. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of probably falls into that. If you're if you're trying to place it as an American listener, you probably wouldn't really mm. get it. Um, but I thought the, his voice and the the thematic music that went along with it just suited the book brilliantly now H.P. Lovecraft himself uh, died in 1937 he was 47 years old Uh, some of his own concerns really come through in this book Mm -hmm. some of them quite understandable some of them quite negative in today's uh, enlightened liberal liberal area Uh, yeah well for example both of his parents died in a mental institution. Ah, that's his uh, father was put into a mental institution when he was just a child. I think mm-hmm. he was like three years old or something, and he died a few years later. Um, and his mother, oh, he was older at the time. He he was an he was a grown man, but she also went ended up in the same institution as his father, and no. died there after uh, I think it was a failed complications to do with a gallbladder surgery or something like right. that. So, but she was uh, in the mental institution when she died mm. and his own fear of going insane which permeates his entire mythos it does really, yeah comes through quite strongly in this with the uh, the, it comes the characters through in Oliver, doesn't it yeah um, very I much so I, th- I think in a way though um, it's because psychology wasn't quite so well understood back mm. then I mean back then they would have just called it going insane <laughs> well, but it would even be a more, few years ago people would just called it being though. a bit of a character <laughs> yeah no it would, they would have a specific syndrome that people got mm. from it or something I mean mostly the people just have PTSD from this mm. don't they <laughs> from seeing these monsters or from reading it yeah, yeah from reading it as well yeah. so but that as I say comes through very strongly in this also um, Lovecraft bear in mind that the times had quite strong feelings about interracial marriage, mm-hmm. things like that and some of that comes through. You expect that in an old in, book. Yeah, in, in this book as well, but not necessarily the way that you might think. Right. Um, but both of those features are present in the story. But 
as I say, the, the real strong theme coming through this is that fear of descent into insanity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's just brilliantly written, very tense. There are some uh, very ye old English words that are used, as, as there are in all of his books, but I think anybody that's reading this will be able to, even if they weren't familiar with the terms used, would be able to um, know from context what those well, words mean. It's only old American, isn't it? It's not like mm. it's medieval. Yeah. And personally, this is probably um, even more so than The Call of Cthulhu, my favourite of the Lovecraft tales. Well, I think it would be a good one to start with, wouldn't it? And we're going to read some of them. Yeah, because it, it's kind of a nice, mild way of introducing you to the mm. mythos as well. And if you've played Mansions of Madness, then you'll recognise it. Yeah, and you'll know some of the characters in there and the, the locations and everything. So if you're familiar with the, with that mythos at all, but you haven't read this book, then you will really enjoy this book. Our Lord and Master made us talk about this. <laughs> so now we have done it. Well, we thought we hadn't we haven't spoken about Cthulhu for a while, have we? And uh, we've certainly not spoken about any of the Cthulhu books. So no. it was about time. You must read it. And it's eighty years since he died, so it seemed fitting. Okay. There, there we are. I am recommending the Shadow Over in Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft. It's a sci-fi horror, which I think you will very much enjoy. <laughs> well, that was fun. Let's carry on with the show. The Meeple's Alive! So that was episode 11. Please be sure to check out our Instagram page. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave us some comments and let us know what you think. Okay, bye. 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 Farewell, Quester, and thanks for joining us. If you wish to avoid the wrath of Greyskarn the Black, then subscribe to our show before you depart. Our fortress is located at meddlesomemeeples.com or join our banners by rendezvousing with us at facebook.com forward slash meddlesomemeeples instagram.com forward slash the meddlesomemeeples or follow the flight of the mountain bluebird to at meddlesomemeeples Until next time, Questa, farewell and keep thine axe sharp.